Time for our Monday expert. What a great topic. Memory. And memory can be a complicated thing. It's not a perfectly kept record of our lives. Memories can be wonderful to look back on, but they can also fail us. So how do they actually work? And how much of the truth do we actually retain? For today's expert feature, we're joined by Alia Devitt, a lecturer in cognitive psychology at the University of Waikato, just to tell us more about how memory works. And if you have any questions, you can text me on 2101, focusing today on memory as it pertains to personal life events. Dr. Alia Devitt, hello. Hi. Just want to make sure I'm saying your first name right. Alia? Alia, yes. Great. How did you become interested in memory? I think it sort of started when I was just assigned an essay in undergrad on false memories, and it was like a topic I'd never thought about before. But then after having to write this essay, it just really fascinated me about, you know, how our memory isn't perfect, how we can remember things that totally didn't happen to us, and, you know, like a PhD and many years later, and I'm still really fascinated by that. So it was the start of it. Um, and you're a technically a lecturer in cognitive psychology. What is that? So cognitive psychology, it's just an approach to psychology that looks at essentially how we think. Um, so things like memory, attention, problem solving, you know, language, any sort of mental processes. It's all about understanding how those work. How much do we understand about memory and how much don't we understand Um, sort of, we understand a lot, but we also don't understand a lot. Um, there's still a long way to go. So, um, I think the important thing to know about memory is that it's not just one thing. So memory is kind of an umbrella term, um, that covers a whole lot of different types of memories. Um, so for example, we can divide up memory in different ways, one way that we divide up memory is into short-term and long-term memory. So short-term memory is your memory that lasts just a couple of couple of seconds, so something that you're thinking about right now. Um, and as soon as you stop thinking about it, it kind of either disappears or it will go into long-term memory where it can be stored and then, you know, hopefully yeah. retrieved, you know, up to decades later in the ideal situation. Um but- Do those processes work in the same way or are they quite different? So they're quite different. So um, short-term memory, you really have to be actively thinking about the information in order for it to kind of stick around. So um, one example of this is, you know, in the old days, if you had to look up a phone number and then you had to type in that phone number, there was this kind of like intermediary period where you had to repeat the phone number over and over again so that you don't forget it. Um, So that's an example of short-term memory. And then if if you were interrupted during that process, you know, that memory tends to disappear. Um, But the mechanisms behind long-term memory are quite different in terms of what information gets stored and kind of how it's stored and then how we retrieve that information later on. It's it's a very different process. And do those processes take place in a certain part of the brain, a certain, certain location? Yes and no. Um, so there is a part of the brain that's really important for memory called the hippocampus. Um, we have two of these. We have one on either side. 
And so this part of the brain is really important for memory, but it's not necessarily where the memories themselves are stored. So it's kind of like this part of the brain is important for pulling together memories and sort of retrieving them out of storage, um, but it's not itself where the memories are stored. But without the hippocampus, we can't remember things um, and we can't form new long-term memories either. So it is you know, very vital. Can you... Can you actually see that part of the brain lighting up when somebody tries to remember something? Yeah. So if we put them in an MRI scanner and we say, you know, remember your last birthday or something like that, that the hippocampus will activate and you'll see that as a bright, colorful blob in the hmm. brain um, lighting up. So it's definitely working hard during memory. Dr. Alia Devitt from uh, University of Waikato taking our questions on memory today. Uh, and Ali, I'm going to ask this one because someone explained memory like this to me and I always think about it and I want to know if it's true or not. So um, someone says on text, when we remember things, is it the original memory or is it the memory of the last time we remembered something? So does a memory fade because it's a bit like a photocopy machine recopying a recopied copy and it corrupts over time as it's remembered over and over again? Does that question make sense? Yes, yep, yep, and that's actually quite a good analogy. Um, so, yes, we call this process reconsolidation. Um, so, essentially, the idea is that every time you retrieve a memory, you, every time you bring it out of storage, you're sort of putting it into this, um, you know, unstable state. Um, and then when it's in this state, it's vulnerable to being changed or distorted. Um, and then you have to consolidate it again. So by that, I mean, we just have to put it back into storage again. So that's where the reconsolidation comes from. Um, and so once you've put it back into storage, there's potential that you've changed it. So this process of retrieving it and then putting it back into storage, you might have changed it in the process. Um, not necessarily every time, but every time there is potential that it could be changed. And so, yes, it's kind of like a photocopier. You know, every time you photocopy it, there might be these slight tiny changes that might build up over time. Why might it change? Why might it change? So in a way, it's a good thing um, because it gives us this potential to update the memory. So perhaps the first time we you know, stored it, it was wrong in some way. And by retrieving it, maybe there's a chance that we can update it and, and rectify any mistakes that might have been available in there. Um, just the trade-off is that maybe we might add some different mistakes to it in that process. Talk to Dr. Alia Deva, who, by the way, her specialty is um, memory for personal life events, if you have questions about that. How much of our past do we remember, Alia, and why do we remember what we remember? Um, so it's hard to say how much we remember because we do a lot of filling in the blanks. Um, so we know that after something happens to us in a sort of days or a couple of days afterwards, there's a lot of forgetting that goes on. Um, so we start forgetting a lot of the details and we generally remember sort of the gist or the general idea of what happened. Um, but we might not necessarily notice this because we might be filling in those details when we remember it next time. Um, so for example, if you're remembering going to a restaurant, you might not need to remember all the specifics about, you know, what happened um, and the exact order that things happened in because they tend to 
happen in the same order every time you go to a restaurant. You know, you get the menu, you choose something, you tell the waiter what you order and so on and so forth. So we can tend to kind of fill in the blanks with this schematic information, we call it, that typically happens to us. Um, so it's difficult to say how much we've forgotten versus how much we're filling in the blanks. Um, in terms of what is remembered, Usually things that are important to us um, or things that are quite emotional, we tend to remember better um, because they are important to us. And so therefore it's important for us to remember that information over time. So that sort of information tends to stick around um, a lot better. Where does the false memory come from? False memories can come from many different places. Um, so to understand false memories, you need to understand that memory is what we call constructive. Um, so by this, I mean that, you know, memory doesn't work like a video recorder. We don't remember everything perfectly. Instead, all the different bits and pieces that make up a memory, they're stored in different locations all over our brain. And every time we want to remember something, we have to pull all these bits and pieces together and essentially reconstruct the memory again, almost from scratch. Um, and so via this process of pulling all these bits and pieces together again, things can go wrong. So, you know, we can leave bits out or we can add bits from different memories in there. Um, there's sort of lots of opportunities within this constructive process for things to go awry. So I like to think of it as like memories like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, so, you know, you have all the different bits and pieces, yeah. all the jigsaw puzzle pieces, and you have to pull them all together in the correct order to make your puzzle or to make your memory. Um, but perhaps you might pull in pieces from different puzzles, or perhaps you might leave pieces behind, um, and then you have holes in your jigsaw puzzle. And, and it's the same process with memory. So there's lots of ways that memory can be distorted and can go wrong. Somebody asks on text, how reliable is eyewitness testimony? Yeah, that's a very common question. Um, and eyewitness testimony, so that, that's memory like any other memory. So it's it's vulnerable to changes just like any other memories are. They're a special case because they're one of the relatively few cases when it's really important that we do have an accurate memory because there are sort of very severe consequences if we do get something wrong. And many cases in the past where... You know, based on faulty eyewitness testimony, say the wrong person has been convicted. Um, so in terms of how accurate eyewitness testimony is, there's been a lot of work looking at what we can do to make eyewitness statements more accurate um, and, and essentially to gather accurate information about people's memories. And there's been sort of changes in how we can do this. So doing things like avoiding leading or suggestive questions um, to try to preserve people's memories and try to get an account of memory as soon as possible can all help to make those eyewitness statements as accurate as possible. Somebody has put me on to an old actor from a TV show called Taxi, whose name is Marilu Henna. And they say she has something, and I've just checked this, it's true apparently, she has something called highly superior autobiographical memory, the ability to recall the slightest details of nearly every day that she has lived. Have you heard of something like that before? Yeah, so this is more of a recent area of research. Um, and so these people who have 
have been identified as having highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM because that's quite a mouthful. Um, and so essentially, if you give them any date from the past, they will be able to tell you what they were doing on that day. You know, if there was any general public events of importance that happened that day. And for most of us, we can't do this unless that was a particularly important day, like our birthday or our wedding day or something like that. We're not able to just immediately remember what happened on any random day from our lives. Um, but these people with HSAM are able to do this. Um, and there's only been you know, a couple of dozen people who have been identified with this. So it's still relatively rare at this stage. And the the cool thing about these cases is that there's no obvious reason for why their memory is so much better than regular people's memories. So if you, say, put them in an MRI scanner and you look at their brains and you look at the hippocampus, the part of their brain that's involved in memory, there's no obvious differences mm. between these people and other people. So it's not necessarily that they have these, you know, whopping great hippocampuses that are, that are doing fantastically. They do seem to be using the same memory system that all of us are using. So they are vulnerable to false memories. They are vulnerable to forgetting information. They just seem to be able to retain information over time better than other people do. Um, and the sort of the, the best explanation for this at the moment is that they're really good at retrieving and rehearsing information. So while most of us, as I said, forget a lot of detail after the first few days after something happens. People with HSAM, because they tend to have this habitual um, retrieval of the past and thinking about what's happened to them, it keeps refreshing these memories. And so they're able to hold on to them for a really, really long time. Um, but they're really interesting cases to look at, these extreme sort of versions of individual differences in memory to understand, you know, why their memory is so good. Yeah. For most of us, how far back can we remember? What is the earliest memory that we can reach? So for most of us, it's around age three to four years old. Um before that, we have what's called childhood amnesia, where we essentially can't remember things that happened to us before around three years old. Um, and again, the reasons for why we're not able to remember these events is not fully clear at the moment. So it, it could just be our brains haven't developed yet. It could be related to language. We don't have full language capacity until around three or four years old. Um, it could be more conceptually related to, you know, our sense of self and our, our identities aren't really forming that early on. Um, and that is sort of really closely tied to autobiographical memory or memory for our personal events. So there's potential reasons why we can't remember events that early. Um, but until about four years old, memories can still be quite fragmented at that stage. Mm. And so it still might be a few years beyond that before we have, you know, really solid memories of our lives. Somebody on text asks, is there a way to remember an important interaction with a departed loved one from long ago in more detail to retrieve the words they actually said uh, and other details? C can you bring memories back once you've forgotten them? Potentially. So it depends how the memory was forgotten because that that's not, a simple process either. Mm. Um, so some memories are forgotten permanently. Um, 
they, you know, memories de decay over time, the information is simply lost. It's not there anymore. So those sorts of memories can't be retrieved. But sometimes we have memories that we seem to have forgotten, but really it's a problem of accessibility. We're not able to access those memories at the time that mm. we want to retrieve them. And so say if we're given the right cue or the right information to help us remember, we can eventually dredge those memories up again. Um, and for any single memory, it, it's almost impossible to know whether it's gone for good or whether it's there. We just need the right information to access it. So if you are trying to remember something really specific, if you can provide yourself with different memory cues, like photographs of the time or something like that to help sort of jog your memory, you might find that you remember more detail about the event, but it really depends if, if the memory's there or not. And, and you don't know unless you try. I'm speaking to, to uh, Dr. Alia Devitt, who is an expert on memory. Don't know if you can help with this one, but someone asks, how do you improve memory? They say, I'm dyslexic and my short-term memory is very bad. Directions and many instructions are always a challenge. Any ideas, Alia? Um, yeah, there are some ways to improve your memory. Um, for short-term memory, I mean, often a problem of memory is not really a problem of memory at all, but it's a problem of attention. Um, so if you're given, you know, directions um, or often people forget other people's names when they're told them straight away, um, or you put your keys down and you forget where you've put your keys down, all these types of memory sort of issues it's probably because you're not paying attention in the first place. So you're not paying attention mm -hmm. when you put your keys down or you're not paying attention when you're learning this person's name. You might be thinking about something else, like do I have broccoli in my teeth or something like that. Huh. So in order to improve your memory for those sorts of things, the one of the things you can do is just make sure that you're really paying attention. So if someone's giving you directions, make sure you're paying attention to what they're telling you. You're really thinking about that information and processing it. Um, if it's something like directions you can try to visualize where they're telling you to go and in this process you're actually getting that information into memory in the first place um, if you're trying to improve your memory in other ways so uh, say you're studying information then you want to remember it for a final test um, there are other things that you can do to improve that sort of memory so um, one really good technique is to essentially do what's called retrieval practice. So you practice testing yourself on that memory. You practice recalling that information. And this this process of bringing the memory back into mind is really good. So we've already talked about reconsolidation and how it can make your memories a little bit unstable, but it can also strengthen your memories as well, this process of bringing them to mind and then putting them back into storage. And that's a really good process to do if you're trying to remember sort of a lot of information is to test yourself on it. Betty says when she was at Dunedin Teachers College in 1960, she was advised that if she witnessed some incident, which later she may have to give evidence on, she should make a written record as soon as possible so that she would be able to give a more accurate report if needed. I guess that's a way of kind of locking in a memory um, as close to the actual facts as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it goes back to what I said about eyewitness statements, trying to get an account of the memory as soon as it as possible after it happened. And ideally before you talk to other people as well, because by talking to other people about the events, especially if they were there, 
their memories could contaminate your memory as well. So mm. if you can write something down as soon as possible before you talk to other people, you're going to have an accurate an account as you could do for that event. Mark, I think this is a tongue-in-cheek comment, but you might have uh, some response to it. Mark says, why does my wife remember the socks I was wearing on our first date 30 years ago and I can't remember where I put my socks 30 minutes ago? Um, so that goes back to probably the attention thing that I said. If you put your socks down and you're not thinking about it, um, that information's not making it into your memory in the first place. Um, it could be that you don't think your socks and where you put them down is very important. So, you know, you don't subconsciously feel like that information needs to make it into your memories. In terms of why your wife might remember the socks, I don't know if you were wearing particularly strange socks on that day <laughs> or sometimes, you know, just these strange details really stick with us and we're not really sure why. How hard is it to research human memory? Um. It depends what type of memory you are researching. So um, I've already talked about one way that we can break down memory. So I mentioned short-term versus long-term memory. There are other ways that we can break it down. So um, say memory for events that have happened to us in our lifetime versus memories for facts versus memories for how to do things like how to ride a bike, how to play the piano. Mm. These are all different types of memories. So if you're studying something like memory for facts, that one's not too difficult to do in the lab um, because you just get people to yeah. remember facts like, you know, um, what's the capital of France and so on and so forth. If you're studying something like in my lab, we look at um, what's called autobiographical memory or memory for your own life. This can be a lot trickier. Um, and one of the difficulties comes from when we're asking people to remember events that have happened to them in, in their lifetime. We can't be sure as a researcher on how accurate these memories are because we weren't there at the time that they happened. Mm -hmm. So people can give us a lot of detail about you know, a particular memory, and we have no way of knowing yeah. is what they're telling us the truth, you know, what actually happened, or uh, do they hold a false memory, for example. So it can be quite difficult um, to study autobiographical memories in the lab for these sorts of reasons. Can you tell us about some of the research you've done that you've really enjoyed? Yeah, so uh, a lot of my research looks at well, it looks at how memory changes as we get older. Um, but a lot of my research also looks at how we do things with memory beyond thinking about the past. So, for example, one of the things that we can use memory for is to actually imagine possible future events. Um, so there's been a lot of work in the past um, that's sort of shown that we tend to use memory to construct novel potential future events that might happen to us. And then some of my research, recent research has sort of looked at the reverse of this relationship. So looking at how imagining future events can actually alter or distort our memory. Um, so one example of this is often we imagine things that are going to happen to us. So say if we have a job interview coming up, we're going to think about this and imagine how it might go. And this act of imagining this potential future event can actually change our memory when it comes to you know, once that event has come to happen and we're thinking back on it, 
by virtue of thinking about it in the future, we have changed how we're now going to remember that event. Hmm. Um, so one particular way this happens is that if we imagine this future event going really well, we think it's going to go really positively yeah. and really great, that's going to bias our memory to remember the positive aspects of that event. Kind of regardless of how it actually turned out, we're going to have more of this rosy memory for this particular huh. event. Um, but the reverse doesn't happen if we imagine it going negatively and we imagine it going really bad. It, the reverse doesn't happen. We don't then remember that event in a really negative way. Um, so my research at the moment is kind of trying to disentangle why. What is it about positive future thinking that can bias our memory, whereas negative future thinking doesn't? Advice for students. Someone wants to know, will taking notes by hand be more effective at remembering something than typing it into a laptop? Mm. So it's not necessarily how you're taking the notes, but it's the sorts of notes that you're taking that's going to be important. So mm. if you're just sort of typing or writing down verbatim in a lecture, what the lecturer might be saying, you're not really processing that information very deeply. Um, and so it's sort of you're doing this sort of surface level thinking about that information and it's not going to be as sticky in your memory as if you are writing down notes where you might be paraphrasing what they're saying or making links to other things and other information that you know about those sorts of notes, now you're thinking much more deeply about the information and that's going to really help it stick. So whether you're doing that by hand or doing that on um, the computer, it's not really the question here. But if you are writing by hand, you do tend to make more of these sorts of paraphrasing links to other information. So you just might, by virtue of it's harder to write, um, be better off writing things by hand. Whereas if you're typing, you might start to lean towards just typing out of verbatim you know, what the lecturer is saying and then it's not as sticky. How does your memory change as you get older? Um, so memory does tend to decline a bit as we get older. Um, it's just kind of a fact of aging, you know, we get wrinkles, our memory doesn't work quite as well as it used to, but this is dependent, again, on the type of memory that it is that we're talking about. So episodic memory, which is memory for events that have happened to us, things that happened on a particular time and place, that sort of memory does tend to get weaker over time. So we're less able to remember the details from those events. But semantic memory, which is memory for facts and general knowledge that we hold, that sort of memory tends to be preserved with age, or in, in some cases, it can even get better with age. So it's not kind of all types of memory go downhill. It really depends on the type of memory it is that we're talking about. Interested in some of the things that affect memory. Um, here's a text from someone who reckons they had a serious loss of short-term memory when they were put on a statin drug, then they came off it and over three months it improved. I don't know if you've had any experience with that particular intervention, but are, are there things that can affect your memory, um, medications and so forth? Yeah, so there are medications. I don't have a lot of experience with this area, but there are definitely medications that can affect your memory. Um, and, you know, there are there are some trials going on Again, I'm not the expert in this area, but there are some trials going on that are using specific drugs to affect that reconsolidation process of memory. So if you bring a memory back into mind 
and then we administer a particular drug at that stage, then that can affect that memory being stored again and essentially weaken that memory. Um, so there are different trials looking at different types of drugs and how they can affect memory, but but it's sort of a, a very broad area there. Someone says they once heard if you eat, for example, a chocolate bar when studying for an exam, then eat one in the exam, you remember what you studied better. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is this is an example of um, using context to help jog your memory. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a famous study on this where the researchers went to some people in a diving club and they had these people uh, study list of words and they studied these words either underwater or on the land. And then they tested them on these lists of words, but they tested them again, either underwater or on the land. And so what they found is that those divers who studied the words underwater remembered them better if they were tested underwater versus if they were tested on the land. But then those who had studied the words on the land remembered them better if they were tested on land versus underwater. And so the idea is that the context that you're studying information or you're learning information and then you're testing yourself on that information is really important. And if the context matches, then you're more likely to remember the information. So I, I haven't heard of it happening with mm -hmm. chocolate bars, but I'm a chocolate fan, so I fully endorse this just for that <laughs> reason alone. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, uh yeah, if I'm doing, a, if I'm practicing for a live event, um, I follow this adva advice I've got in my head somewhere that if you stand up and, and you know practice in the conditions that the live event will actually be in, it's more likely to come to you when you're when you're standing there and have to do it for real. Um, that's what I say to my daughter as well. If she's doing speech, I say stand up and you know give it like you would give when you're up in front of your school. I guess that's the yeah, same sort of principle, yeah. context, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's the same with it with the advice goes of oh retrace your steps if you've forgotten something. So if you walk into a mm. room and you're like, Why did I walk into this room? What was I going to do? <laughs> if you go and retrace your steps, you're reinstating that context or you're putting yourself back in the same place where you thought about that information. And so that's going to help jog your memory again for, you know, why you got up in the first place. Jesse, can you please ask your guests about TGA, transient global amnesia? My sister-in-law had 24-hour memory loss for no apparent reason. Um, I don't know much about amnesia for no apparent reason. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. So I, won't I ask can't you to make really it up. speak towards that one. No. <laughs> How about this one from Glenn who says, my autistic boy uh, who's now 23 I can remember, well, he has memories from age four or five as if it happened 10 minutes ago. He reckons that his memories are f almost photographed. Yeah, I mean, again, this comes back to there, there's a lot of individual differences in how well we can remember things. And so some people do have really visual memories and they can really picture what happened. Some people have no visual memories at all. So they do remember things, but just they're not able to picture it in their minds. Um, and you know, sometimes things from really long ago really, really stick with us and we don't know why. Um, but I definitely know of, you know, cases of children, for example, who conveniently forget certain things like, you know, that they have to eat their vegetables and so on, but will tell you in great detail about the time that you promised to take them to the zoo, you know, mm -hmm. a year ago. So um, if they're important memories, they're likely to stick around. And maybe it's the case that that this person's remembering really important events to them and that's why they can picture them so vividly. Are memories recalled during hypnosis always accurate? So there is 
very weak or no evidence that memories that are recalled during hypnosis are accurate. Um, so people can remember things, but whether what they're remembering is actually an accurate ver- accurate version of what happened, there's not much supporting evidence for that. So when you try to corroborate those memories, we're not typically able to. Good chat. What piece of research are you most interested in seeing? We've got 30 seconds left. Um, you know, What are you excited about in the future? So I'm really excited about this idea that memory is not just used for remembering the past. We can use it to do other things. So I already mentioned we can use it to imagine future events, but there's research coming out um, and some research that I've been involved in as well showing that we can use memory to think creatively um, and that you know, things like memory distortions might just be the downside of this memory system that we can use for really, all these really beneficial things like thinking creatively, Great. problem solving, imagining future events, and so on. Dr. Alia Devitt from University of Waikato, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time.